You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Deanna Lee. And I'm Evan Banks. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's August 25th. Many commentators have likened today's Russia-Ukraine war to the Western Front of World War I. But this analogy isn't useful, say Rand's Raphael Cohen and John Gentile. In fact, it's outright misleading. They argue that the Second World War, in particular the battles that took place in the hedgerows of Normandy in the summer of 1944, is a better historical precedent to understand the current conflict in Ukraine. Cohen and Gentile cite several reasons for this. To start, Much of the fighting on the Western Front during World War I was characterized by technological deadlock, with neither side being able to overcome the powerful defensive advantages that machine guns, trenches, and barbed wire provided. Even the most innovative technologies of the era, such as the airplane, the tank, and poison gas, could not break the impasse. By contrast, World War II was a much more fluid conflict, periods of relative stasis were followed by breakthroughs. This is similar to the situation in Ukraine today, where there have been a number of impasses followed by rapid territorial gains. This pattern was particularly apparent during last year's battles of Kiev, Kharkiv, and Kherson. Further, the terrain and the troop density that characterize Ukraine's ongoing counteroffensive are also similar to what was seen in Normandy. And finally, there is the all-important question of morale. In 1944, German defenses in Normandy proved determined, but ultimately bitter, until finally reaching their breaking point. Although it's not easy to predict what will happen in Ukraine, the collapse of Russian forces around Kharkiv last fall suggests that the Russian military is not immune to a sudden implosion. And Moscow's circumstances on the front have only grown increasingly grim since then. It's important to note that none of these similarities guarantee that Ukraine will achieve a breakout like the U.S. Army did in Normandy nearly 80 years ago. But the World War II analogy is nonetheless an argument for patience and persistence, according to our experts. In 1944, the U.S. Army's daily advances eventually wore down the German defenders. Today, the Ukrainian military is going at a similar pace, moving slow but making progress. Whether this halting progress ultimately grinds the Russian military down or grinds to a halt will only be revealed in time, they say. When it comes to funding a college or other post-secondary education, many people turn to student loans. But the process is complicated and presents a major barrier for many students. And a lot of programs are ineligible for traditional student loans. But are there viable alternatives to loans that would help people pay for school? A new RAND study examines one potential option, income share arrangements, or ISAs, which are already offered by many post-secondary institutions. Under an ISA, students receive education funding in exchange for a share of their future income after the program or degree has been completed. Repayment occurs for a set period, and payments are only required when the learner's earnings exceed a certain amount. 
To learn more about this financing approach, our researchers conducted a national survey and studied more than 160 institutions that offer ISAs, including two- and four-year colleges and workforce development and training programs. Here's a summary of their findings. Only 20% of U.S. adults had heard of ISAs, but 40% said they would consider using one. The information that people need to make an informed decision about an ISA is often missing from publicly available documentation. Individuals must evaluate ISA contract terms to fully understand the repayment obligation. For example, a high income percentage often means a short repayment term. The impacts of ISAs, positive or negative, are likely to be concentrated among underserved groups because these populations are disproportionately exposed to these financing options. While this study does not determine whether ISAs are net good or net bad, it does shed light on an emerging alternative to student loans that could help alleviate the increasing financial burden carried by students. Both the United States and China are racing to develop AI and other emerging technologies to gain a competitive edge in the global contest over power, security, wealth, influence, and status. Some of these technologies could take on nuclear weapons-like qualities in their ability to shape a country's economic, political, and military future. Most will develop more slowly, or have less singular but nonetheless important impacts. According to Rand's Caitlin Lee, to ensure the United States stays ahead in this race, the Pentagon may want to look back at America's last epic technological competition with a peer adversary, the U.S.-Soviet race to develop nuclear weapons during the Cold War. A Cold War framing offers important insights about America's position relative to China today. Like the United States and the Soviet Union decades ago, the U.S. and China are currently on divergent paths, even as they look for potential areas of cooperation. Washington is focusing on limiting the flow of technology to China, reshoring some technology supply chains, most notably semiconductors, and investing in U.S. tech innovation at home. Meanwhile, Beijing is charting its own independent course to displace the U.S. as a world leader, in part by reducing its reliance on American technology and spreading its technology-driven authoritarianism across the globe. A look back at the Cold War also provides a useful template for how the U.S. might win out against China. During the Cold War, the U.S. government showed a remarkable capacity to take in new information, revise hypotheses, and gradually focus on distinct operational problems. Ultimately, this effort led to the development of the U.S. precision strike regime, a network of command and control, satellites, guided weapons, and effective stealth capabilities. But the most important lesson from this experience that can guide today's tech cold war is not the ultimate success of the analysis, but the painful, messy path it took to get there. In other words, Lee says, the United States must accept failure as a natural part of the process of discovery. Leaders should be willing to innovate, have open debates, take risks on new technologies, and accept that some things won't work. 
The power of such an approach is that it leaves room for error and correction. It provides the space needed to test new ideas and eventually will allow the U.S. to find the right answers. That is, to identify which technologies have the best chance at edging out China. This intensifying strategic competition between the U.S. and China over emerging technology and several other areas does dominate many foreign policy debates. But let's shift now to another important competition that's playing out a bit more quietly, the jostling between India and China for influence in South Asia. This contest will likely prove crucial to America's efforts to keep the region free and open from Chinese coercion. The good news, at least for now, says Rand's Derek Grossman, is that India has been mostly successful in pushing back against China. New Delhi is gaining an edge over Beijing by building strategic ties and partnerships with many of its neighbors. For example, India has forged working ties to the Taliban, sending humanitarian aid and development assistance to Afghanistan. Recent political changes in the Maldives, Nepal, and Sri Lanka have been a boon for relations with India. And India is making inroads in Pakistan, even as Pakistan's ties with China strengthen. There's no guarantee that things will stay this way, Grossman warns. An election can change a country's geopolitical alignment in the blink of an eye. And China is, of course, a formidable player not least because its economy is more than five times as large as India's. The stakes are high. If India fails to prevent Chinese influence from deepening across South Asia, it could seriously jeopardize the U.S.-Indo-Pacific strategy. If India is losing out to China, for example, it will have less bandwidth to support U.S. objectives in Southeast Asia or the Pacific. India might also choose to prioritize its partnership with Russia in hopes that Moscow might convince Beijing to change its behavior. Finally, if India concludes that China is successfully encircling it, this raises the possibility of war between two nuclear-armed powers. None of these outcomes are desirable. To avoid them, Grossman says that Washington should, quote, bolster New Delhi's efforts to not only stay ahead of Beijing and South Asia, but further widen the gap. That's it for today's episode. You can learn more about the topics we discussed in the show notes at rand.org slash podcast. We're off next week. Have a safe and enjoyable Labor Day, and we'll be back in your feeds on September 8th. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis.